Take your Bible, open it to Isaiah 55. It's my favorite chapter in the book I've been waiting for a year. A year. And that's right there. That is the best way to overpromise and underdeliver on a sermon. Oh boy, I did myself in on that one, didn't I already? Just pack it up, go home. All right, Isaiah 55, this is the word of the Lord. It's lovely. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he has no money. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven... And do not return there, but water the earth, make it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy. And be led forth in peace, the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Father, your word is good and right and true, and we are not. The gap between can only be measured and crossed by Christ, and we pray that he would and that your spirit would give us faith even now. For Christ's sake, amen. Now I need you to turn on your holy imaginations. Maybe it would be helpful, I guess, if you start thinking in the category of Aladdin. That might be the best thing of that ancient Near Eastern kind of marketplace. It's how kind of Aladdin starts at some point. I can't remember. It's been a long time since I watched the movie. But where you have the, uh, the little poor urchin who's starving to death, who kind of makes his way into the gigantic, bustling marketplace. 
And you can kind of see in your mind's eye what that marketplace is like, can't you? Where it's like there's all sorts of smells and all sorts of sights, and you have different vendors that are like, hey, come over here, I've got the best food ever. And the guy across the way is like, hey, no, you come over here, I've got better food than him. And this one's like, I've got the best dessert ever. And that one's like, no, I've got, and it's just everybody's calling out, and it's like this cacophony of just noise and smell and sound and sight. And you can understand kind of the perspective of the urchin, right? Aladdin, whoever else, whichever movie you've seen or book you've read, where with an empty belly that's growling, stumbling into the marketplace, hoping to be able to find a little food. Now, I don't want you actually ultimately to imagine Aladdin. It's really imagining the Bible, That's really kind of the the starting description of where Isaiah 55 begins. It's telling the story of the poor urchin boy that stumbled into the marketplace, the urchin boy being Israel, starving, miserable, lonely, outcast, a, a struggling human And all of the various things are calling out to capture Israel's attention. Egypt, Syria, Babylon, personal wealth, pleasures, idolatries, sins. Calling out and trying to capture the mind and the heart and the attention and the desires of the poor orphan boy, Israel. And at this point in the book of Isaiah, it's been kind of, right, destruction coming. And it's easy for us to understand Israel kind of in this place of having really no hope of improving their condition. Right? The northern kingdom's invaded, the southern kingdom's about to be invaded. It's about to be destruction at a complete and total comprehensive level. And there's really, at this point, not, not a whole lot they're going to be able to do to get out of it. And their leaders have betrayed them. They've looked to foreign nations for help and survival. They've tried to make treaties with the enemies of God. It, it, it's just a mess. And you kind of have this mental picture, at least I do, as the chapter starts of kind of Israel walking into the marketplace and all of the various vendors and stalls have been calling out and trying to persuade this young boy to come spend the money that he doesn't have. And just this, this exercise in misery and distraction. Until a different voice chimes in. Until a different voice chimes in now, not the voice of a vendor who's trying to sell you something, not the vendor who's trying to figure out exactly how much money the boy has to be able to take it all, not the vendor who's ultimately going to sell him some rotten bill of goods, not the vendor who's going to make it look good, but then when you actually get it, it's rotten fruit or whatever else. Isaiah 55 begins with the Lord talking. And it's intriguing that he's kind of presenting himself as being one of the vendors in the marketplace. 
Israel, hey, hey, Israel, I know you hear all of the voices of everyone else. You smell all of the smells of what they have to offer you. You see all of the sights. You hear all of the noises. You have all of the distractions of a massive market in an ancient Near Eastern developing country. Until God speaks. And it's intriguing, you verses 1 and 2. The divine vendor begins to explain what his stall in the marketplace does. What, what, what is he selling? What is, what is God selling? Come! You can hear him calling out to the various you know, customers walking through the marketplace. Come, come, come on in, come in, come in. Come, are, are you thirsty? I have water. Are you hungry? I have food. I have the best. It's actually interesting if you hear what kind of, we've read this passage so many times. But pay attention to what he's actually offering in verses one and two. Come. Everyone who's thirsty, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Come, come be satisfied. And if you have no money, that's okay. Come on in. Buy with your no money, not credit, not debt. Come buy and eat. With your no money and with your no debt, come buy. Get the best of wine. Get milk. Without money and without price. And, and you, what an amazing kind of invitation, isn't it? Now, again, for us, we, we live in a time in which our grocery stores end up throwing away food because we have too much. But again, you have to kind of imagine yourself in that starving little boy, the, the orphan boy's mind. Can you imagine hearing that where, where you've been living off of scraps and rotten food that you found in the trash or the leftovers that you have to fight the dogs for? And to have somebody say, hey, no, come on in. You're thirsty, I've got water. You're hungry, I've got bread. In fact, actually, you need nourishment and strength, I have milk. You want joy and delight, I have wine. That would have been excellent because you know it would have been the kind of thing you could drink and not get sick from. You you want the good life. That's what I'm offering. In fact, actually, verse 2, he highlights that fact where he says, why are you wasting the little money you do have? You're, you're starving to death. You're miserable. Your life is so bad, and yet you go around, and the little bits of money that you do find, you spend it on cotton candy, things that are ephemeral and passing, things that may give you joy for just a brief moment but make you feel worse in the end. Why do you spend your money on junk food? Why do you spend your energy on that which does not satisfy? Listen, he says. I'm inviting you to the good life. Now, 
You can imagine in the marketplace of ideas and in the, the, the stalls of all of these different kind of vendors what a unique offer this is to say, I'm not offering just a good meal. I'm not offering a good dessert. It's not like the state fair where I'm going to get, you know, deep-fried Snickers inside a deep-fried ice cream inside a deep-fried turkey or some abomination that will be delicious. I don't know. This you have God kind of personifying himself saying, anybody. It doesn't matter how poor you are. It doesn't matter how miserable you are. It doesn't matter how hungry you are. It doesn't matter how thirsty you are. You want the good life, and I'm inviting you in, and it'll cost you nothing. Come on in. Now, I'll be candid For many of us, that's an offer that is generally appealing, but oftentimes is easily forgotten, namely because the life that we live here is so good. I mean, how many of us, the food illustrations in the Bible really kind of don't tug at our heartstrings because we eat so well all of the time, right? I mean, some of us, my pant size probably shows that I do eat a little bit too well sometimes, But just because we've forgotten, it doesn't mean that the offer is not real and true and, in fact, actually so important that it resonates with our soul. And you know how I know that? It's because having pastor now long enough to know that it's easy for us to forget that offer in the good times. But the second that our hearts break, that's when it's like, I just want the good life. I feel dried up on the inside. I feel broken and empty. I feel like my heart can't hold anything inside. I feel like I'm constantly longing for a better thing, and everything I know feels like pain. I want the good life. I love the illustration here as it kind of begins with God crying out, saying, hey, you want the good life? Come on in. (laughs) Come on in. Come on in. You can imagine the young boy kind of stopping, listening to the vendor. Maybe his hunger surpasses his judgment. He's not sure, but at some point the rumbling belly gets to him. And you can kind of imagine him kind of asking, well, like, what do, what do you even talk, like, what do you mean? It sounds too good to be true. What, what, do, you, what do you even mean? What does the good life look like? And, and that's actually a legitimate question because that's the thing that our, our, our world in general, but our nation particularly, is just losing on. We've lost a definitive vision of what the good life is. I mean, for many years, we had the American dream here that was kind of like a, a, a portrait of what a good life was. This is the good life, the one that satisfies our soul. And the problem is, is the longer that we kind of live and the more that we have financial resources, the more we realize that's actually a really complicated thing to answer. I remember listening to a sports talk radio host, uh, this is 15 years ago, 10 years ago, and he said, most of us, we tend to think of the good life as a salary that's 20% larger than what we make. He's like, doesn't matter how much money you make, 
it's almost certain you want 20% more. Now, that was 15 years ago. I suspect now that number's probably closer to 30% more, largely because our greed is inflated uh, with our inflation, but whatever. But it's intriguing that he, even he was kind of acknowledging that like, we don't really understand kind of definitively as a, as a nation or as a people. Uh, now, he wouldn't have the category of sinners, perhaps, but that's what it is. That we, we don't really have a good idea of what the good life is. Most of the time, when kind of at the end of the day, we'll push and say, well, it means that I don't hurt all of the time. It means that I'm, I'm, I'm happy or close enough to it that I can fake it, and that I have my friends and family nearby. I get to spend time with them, and I have some sense of fulfillment, that my life has some sense of meaning. And it's interesting, the Lord actually, in, in verses 3 through 5, really gives an explanation of what the good life is. And it's not what you would expect. He invites the young boy in, offers him the the free good life, the free meal, the free food, all of the blessings that the Lord would have to offer. And then in verses 3 to 5, he explains, no, actually, you know what? Your hunger is a good thing because it points you to the right direction, but there is actually a better life than just your belly. Incline your ear. And you, you can imagine, right, the vendor saying, come, listen, I'm gonna tell you. Incline your and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And in that even, that soul concept, he, he's getting past simply our belly. Our hunger urges, our pleasure urges, our sexual urges. He, he's moving past that and getting into the, the very fiber of our being. The very essence of who we are. Come, listen, I've got the good life and the good life that that actually gets to the very center of your person. And you know what that good life actually looks like? And I love this. (laughs) An everlasting covenant. That God himself will promise to his people that he will be with them and will never leave them, and will never forsake them, and they will have blessing for all eternity. Now, you can imagine, again, the poor orphan boy in that setting might respond and say, well, (laughs) great, an everlasting covenant. I'll just take a meal today, and maybe one tomorrow, and we're good. Right? You fill my belly today, you fill my belly tomorrow, maybe a week's worth of meals, and we'll call it good. Right? That's it. I, that's, that may be all he's aiming for. An interesting look, the Lord goes, explains what that covenant would look like. It, it looks like my steadfast love. <laughs> oh, wow. So God is taking the fullness of his affection, and he's placing it upon his people, and he's placing the fullness of his affection upon his people in a way that is durable, enduring, stable, and strong, so much so that verses 4 and 5, you get to see, is transformative. The David, the shepherd, because of God's love, was made to be the great of kings, made to be a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of his nation, even a witness to the very nations themselves that would marvel at his brilliance and beauty as a king and wonder 
at the nature of his God. Now that's a little different, isn't it? <laughs> right? The poor orphan boy, like, I, I, I just like a meal, please. I just like a meal, please. And the divine vendor saying, no, I will give you that too. But I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. Kings and queens in your own right beneath the high king Jesus. Sons and daughters of the most high royalty of the greatest royalty. You will be my people and I will be your God. You want a, you, you want a meal, you're, you're asking way too small. That's too low. He's going to give way grander. And you can imagine the boy, as he kind of begins to think through this, would say, like, well, how do I get that? Like, that, that is beyond the best deal. It's probably too good to be true in most other situations. In fact, every other situation it is. How do I get it? And the Lord answers. Verses 6 and 7 explains how do we get that good life? How do we get that, that blessing? Seek the Lord. I love it. It's not some, you know, divinely ordained series of hoops that you have to jump through. It's not some, you know, kind of mystical, uh, you know, ancient Near Eastern version of like, you know, master lock where you have to turn it back and forth and hope you guess the numbers right. You know, it's not like that game you used to play at kids where we play at VBS where you got jelly beans in a jar so you can guess the right number of jelly beans. The person who's closest gets to go to heaven. Everybody else, I'm sorry. Seek the Lord. Just go, just go, go after the Lord. And in fact, actually call upon him because you're not going to be able to find him on your own. Just call for him and he'll find you. And when he finds you, well, <laughs> repentance. And this is, I, I think, probably the, the most shocking thing if you were kind of thinking of it from outside the biblical categories. Now, again, if you've been in the Bible your whole life, you're like, well, obviously repentance, I get it. But if you're outside thinking of biblical categories, you would think like, okay, you know, when, when the high king comes to the poor orphan boy, you, you would think that the boy would need to be impressive, he, he would need to show that he's more clever than everyone else, or he, he would need to show that he's got more guile than everyone else, or he would need to show that he has more dexterity or agility. He would, he would need to show something that makes him better than everyone. And it's intriguing that actually what the Lord says is that when it's time, you own the fact that you don't deserve it at all. You, you can't rest on your guile because you don't have enough guile more than God. You can't rest on your cleverness. You don't have enough cleverness, certainly not more than the Lord himself. You can't rest on your goodness or your grace. You have nothing to stand before, to stand on when you stand before the Lord. So what is your position when the Lord shows up? You call for him, he comes to you, and then you bow before him in repentance. That's it. It's submission. It's acknowledging that we don't have anything to bring to the table. We don't have anything to improve the equation. We don't have anything to curry or earn his favor. There's nothing that we can contribute. 
And so we just repent. Plead the Lord's mercy. Ask that his goodness would be sufficient. Ask that his grace would be sufficient. And I, I love verse 7. That's a scary thing, right? I mean, to be, to, again, to be truthful, for those of you that were converted later in life, it's important that we learn from you, those of us that grew up never knowing days apart from Jesus. For those of us that grew up never knowing days apart from Jesus, Christianity is far less scary than it is for those of you that were converted later in life. Those of you converted later in life, you know that there was a point where you're like, ooh, this is terrifying. Because it means that I'm not in charge anymore. And that is a really scary thing. And the idea even of repentance, of just kind of casting ourselves before the Lord and saying, I'm the mess here and I'm so sorry and I need your help and your forgiveness. I'm so sorry. That's a scary thing because it's, it's priming us for rejection. But interesting, look at 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man is also. Repent. Let him return to the Lord. Why? So that the Lord may have compassion on him. And let him return to our God. Why? For our God will abundantly pardon. That's such an interesting, again, you think in those kind of imaginary categories. It's like the, the poor boy, the orphan boy who's been stealing constantly to just go before the king and say, look, I'm a thief. There's no reason why you should like me. In fact, you have every reason to execute me. I'm a thief. I've stolen food from every vendor in here. That's actually why I was there. I wasn't shopping. I was finding my mark. I'm not a good one. I'm a bad one. And interestingly, what's the promise? (laughs) You own your mess. You go to the Lord and he will forgive. I love that. It's not he might. It's not like, well, we kind of hope. It's not, well, he's predisposed to it, but you know, you still could grasp defeat from the jaws of victory. It's not a, well, you know, if you say the right words or you get a right magical incantation, hope for it. No, it, he will. If you're his child, just, just go plead forgiveness. He'll, he'll give it. <laughs> you can imagine, again, Israel as the little boy going like, are you for real? I really just came to steal food. And you're offering me all of the food. Oh, yeah, by the way, and to make me a king in, your, uh, in my own right. And oh yeah, by the way, forgive everything bad that I've done up to this point that should get me executed if the cops ever get me. Yeah, that's pretty cool. But you could also imagine the boy being like, who is this idiot? Like what in the world? Who is this idiot? That they're willing to give everything away for me who doesn't deserve any of it. It it has to be too good to be true. It can't be. It can't be true. And I love that the Lord actually explains that. You can see the thought process. I I love it so much. God will pardon in in verse 7. You're like, that seems like a terrible mistake, God. It really seems like a terrible mistake that you would genuinely forgive anyone that comes to you in repentance. 
right? One of the more recent examples that we've had of this with uh, one of the documentaries coming out not too long ago. I can't endorse it. I'm not, I'm not talking about it. I'm talking about the person, not the documentary. Uh, but Jeffrey Dahmer, right? You know that story? One of the worst humans in American history, absolute total scumbag, uh, by every indication was converted in, in prison and then was martyred, actually, for trying to share his faith. And they actually killed him because they said, your God can't forgive that. I don't know his heart. I hope I see him in heaven. I suspect that he's gonna be one of those guys that, much like Samson, Hebrews says, of whom the world is not worthy. What an awesome sentence. (laughs) Jeffrey Dahmer, the worst person we can think of, of whom the world was not worthy. But again, we, we, this is the point where we go like, surely God, you're making a mistake that you're gonna give everything to that guy? He's terrible. Verse eight and nine. Lord's like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoo, time out. Cool your jets. My thoughts aren't your thoughts. We got different brains. Now that part's obvious, we've got this. He thinks differently than we do. Neither are your ways my ways. Okay, so we do things differently, that's good. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and your, my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, this is the Lord's very, very generous way of saying, and this is so kind-hearted and so loving. Look, any criticism that you have of me is simply because you're too dumb. Now, it's, it's very generous and very loving, but he's gently saying, you're kind of stupid, and you're not getting the point. Now, and I'm, I don't mean this in the, the harsh sense of it, but in the sense of he's outside of time and space. So like any time I evaluate any judgment, I am always making my decisions based in a timeline. Things that I do know make a decision and things that I don't know, right? Things into the future. I, I don't know the future. I mean, we could all get hit by a comet in like 12 seconds. I don't know. I wouldn't know what is happening until we all met Jesus. I can't tell the future. So anytime I make a decision, I'm making it in, in time and in space with limited information, I'll give you a hint. That's why I change my mind all of the time. It's because I get new information. I'm like, oh, well, that was a terrible idea. I wish I hadn't done that. New intel. That was a really bad thing. That was a dumb idea. I did it, and I did it thinking it was good, but I didn't know. (sighs) Right? We, We don't know. The Lord, however, is outside of time and space, and because he's outside of time and space, he has all information constantly in front of him, always. So when he goes to make decisions, there's no new information. It's not like he's a low information voter. He knows everything. So when he makes a choice, he's making his choices based on all perfect knowledge, all perfect wisdom, and all perfect goodness. So when he's saying this, he's like, look, friend of mine, child of mine, beloved creature that I made, I made you to not know things. And you're getting so bent out of shape because you don't know. And I'm outside of time and I'm outside of space and I see all of it and I'm telling you, you got it wrong. I love it. <laughs> this gameplay is too good to be true. You, how are you doing this? You really gonna waste your resources? Like You're gonna forgive a person like me? You're gonna work in a life like mine? And the Lord's like, yeah, cool your jets, man. I know what I'm doing. You don't. The issue is not God's lack of wisdom. 
The issue is my lack of wisdom. I don't understand. And he gives an example. A teachable moment instructs Israel, the young boy, and says, just like the rain and the snow, they fall from the sky. You would think that that would be a tremendous waste, that one of the very things that we need for life, water, the Lord wastes it so much that he has it fall from the sky. But then if you actually stop and think about what, happened if the, what would happen if the world stopped raining? Well, I mean, right now we know every, it would all die. Right? I mean, that's, you look at the Atacama Desert. It, everything there is dead. Microbes don't live there because it rained in like seven bajillion years. Not really. But interestingly, he's like, look, I have rain, I have water, I have snow, I, I have it fall from heaven, and I'm not squandering it. In fact, I have it fall everywhere on earth at times, and what do I do with it? I use it to make things grow, and I use it to make things grow that you don't even know exist. And in fact, I make things grow so that it's able to make food for you and to make food for my other creatures. I make the world operate by spending my resources. And oh yeah, my word's going to do the same thing. Word's going to go out and it's going to go into places that you'll never know that it goes and into hearts that you'll never know that it will go to and it's going to accomplish my purposes and it's going to do every single thing that I wish. So calm down, I know what I'm doing and I'm going to be successful. It's going to win. I love that. It's one of the very few things that keeps me sane as a preacher and as a pastor. My job is not to be responsible for results. My job is to preach the best sermons that I can preach. And my job is to make sure that I'm faithful to the word. But I just throw it out there. And we're going to see what God does with it. And the good thing is I know he's going to use it. Now, he gives the illustration here to young Israel of, hey, (laughs) just like the rain, I know what I'm doing. Just like my word, I know what I'm doing. And you could imagine the, the boy again being like, well, uh, 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 surely it can't be that good. And I love that how he ends the chapter. This is what my word is accomplishing. This is what my word is doing. You shall go out in joy. Be led forth in peace. Now, for a nation that's in process of being invaded, that's probably a pretty promising opportunity. But then now he breaks out into kind of figurative illustration. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. So suddenly we've gone back into our, you know, musical. Now it's not the people that are taking up the song because they're so happy. It's the actual, like, set. That's weird, but okay, Right? God's blessing his people so abundantly that as they go forth in this kind of like holy parade, at the end, again, you think about like kind of a coronation, that the little boy has been made king of sorts, under king, underneath God. But as he's led out in blessing, even the mountains begin to sing God's praise. Even the hills, the trees begin to clap their hands and not Tolkien's 
ints or something like that. Like the actual very fabric of creation is praising God for the blessing that he's given to this child. That's an amazing thing to think about, isn't it? That at some point in history, future history, the very created order will begin to directly praise God for how he has blessed his people. How much he loves us and how he's taken care of us. Now, it ends even with the bad things are gonna go away. All the things that are sad will become untrue. And instead, the Lord will make a name for himself by how well he cares for his people. Now, a couple of bits of application, briefly. Again, there are some of us in the room, I I do poke fun at myself with this often, but that are sometimes obnoxiously happy. That's, I'm often in that category. For those of us that are in that category today, this, this chapter is good, it should stir your heart and warm you that the Lord loves you so much that he's inviting you into the good life. And I would say for those of us in that category, maybe our task today is to not grow complacent, right? To not, to, to not forget about it. To not get caught up in the busy good things that he's placed before us and forget this story. That the Lord loves his people And he's redeeming them in Christ Jesus and he's transforming them by the Spirit applying the Word and he's making us new creatures in Christ. Maybe we don't go quite so complacent because see, the actual danger for us in that great and happy category is that we get, pardon the expression, so fat and happy that we become useless to the church. Right? We, we get so comfortable and satisfied with this world that we become useless to the church. We don't do anything. We don't help. We're not active participants in kingdom expansion. We're not inviting others in. Why, why would we? Because we're fat and happy. And I mean that spiritually, not physically. Sorry. Second category of person in the room, there are some in here that actually that young boy with the broken life resonates a bit more than you would probably like it to. There are probably some in here you're like, man, did you write this sermon about me? I'll give you, I never do that. I'll make the orders of worship before your life falls apart so you, it's not written for you. God wrote it, not me. But for those of you that your life feels like, man, that poor orphan boy, I just need that help. Friends, his promises are still there. (laughs) Again, he makes them outside of time. As long as time is still existent, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. He can still be found today, and he's still near. Call upon him. Ask for his help. Turn to him in repentance. Look for him to give you the good life. Find hope in him. Lastly, I would say, just for us all corporately, maybe to be reminded that part of our task here is to take this invitation of the good life to all of those people out there 
that have mistaken the wonderful life in Fort Mill for the real life. And they need to know him, friends. They need to know the Lord Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you give freely to us with you paying the entirety of the cost, either in spending your resources or even in the death of your son. Please forgive us for Christ's sake. Amen.